Please pray, pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The passage from Ephesians that we heard read moments ago begins as follows. Be careful how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. The days are evil. I suspect I'm not alone in feeling that this gloomy assertion rings true in ways that it would not have even a small number of years ago. Reading this passage 10 years ago, say, I do not think that this assertion of Paul's from two millennia ago would have seemed an apt description of my own time. The days are evil? Really? In 2011? In 2011, Netflix streaming service was a mere four years old, and many of us were just growing accustomed to the wonder of a seemingly endless supply of on-demand entertainment. In 2011, the rapidly growing Facebook was well on its way to a billion users. And it seemed at least to many that our social lives would be significantly enriched by the ability to maintain social connections unconstrained by geography without the need to invest significant energy in phone calls and personalized letters or email. The days are evil. How about the days are fun? Of course, I was fully aware of significant evils in 2011. Netflix, Facebook, and smartphones may have played a large role in influencing my gut feeling about the times, but if called to give a sober analysis of the state of the times, I would not have focused on those sources of pleasure and distraction. In such an analysis, I might have mentioned troubling facts about poverty and extreme wealth inequality, or said something about declining church attendance in many countries of the West, or mentioned the strengthening of radical religious nationalism in various parts of the world. I might have said something about climate change and other forms of environmental degradation and so on. But a decade ago, I at least felt fundamentally optimistic in thinking that the world was moving fitfully, but unmistakably towards a future that would be better than our past. Today in 2021, I'm no longer so optimistic. In my own case, it is facts about climate change that have done the most to unseat my optimism about the future. Given the apparent seriousness uh, and urgency of the threat, the tepidness of governmental responses seems downright scary to me. But of course, there are other things that dismay me. For example, the way so-called information technology has accelerated the spread of disinformation. How so-called social media has helped to corrode the social fabric of our society as users sort themselves or are algorithmically sorted into echo chambers that reinforce pre-existing views and amplify rage towards one's political opponents. At a moment where we face challenges of a scale that's difficult to fathom, it seems harder than ever for people to arrive at a shared understanding of the most basic facts that characterize those challenges. Evil days indeed. So Paul's assertion that the days are evil has fresh resonance, at least for me. And I, for one, am eager to hear what we should do about it. 
A few verses back in verse 8 of the fifth chapter of Ephesians, Paul says the following to his hearers, who are mostly Gentile converts to Christianity. He says, for once you were darkness, but now in the Lord, you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. These words bring to mind a famous verse from John 1. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. This then sounds promising. Jesus, of course, is the light of God come into the world. But here Paul is saying that those who are in Christ are also the light. And this light can eradicate darkness, can it not? So how do we, with God's help, do that? How should the children of light confront the darkness that threatens our natural environment or the fabric of our society? I read on with anticipation. So do not be foolish, Paul goes on to write, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not get drunk with wine. Sing psalms and hymns. Always give thanks to God. These are fine injunctions. But aren't they a bit underwhelming for someone who wants to know what we should be doing about rapid climate change and social fragmentation? If we zoom out from this small passage and look at Ephesians as a whole, we find ethical appeals that encourage believers to pursue peace and unity within the church. Appeals that encourage believers to, maintain, to attain maturity in their spiritual understanding so that they are not misled by deceptive teaching. And a number of appeals encouraging personal righteousness and purity. We are to serve one another with humility and gentleness. We are to avoid the ways of darkness, which include greed, sexual immorality, festering anger, obscenities, and even coarse joking. These appeals are all good and well. I think all of us desire to be part of a community that takes such appeals to heart. But the portrayal of righteous life that we're given here can seem inadequate to meet the moral challenges of the present age. Is not the brand of righteousness that's commended here too meager in the face of doubts about the very livability of our planet in the decades to come? As oceans warm and acidify, ocean ecosystems are pushed to the brink. Historic droughts, heat waves, fires, and floods, we are told, are mere foretastes of the intensifying extremes to come. In the face of these evils, an injunction to avoid drunkenness or an encouragement to sing spiritual songs can feel like an unhelpful distraction from more urgent ethical matters. Paul gives us here an ethic of purity when it might seem that we need an ethic of revolution. Paul commends a spirit of gratitude for what we've been given, though it may seem that what the world needs is a sense of urgency and appropriate fear that we as a society are squandering much of what we have. So I confess to experiencing some degree of letdown when I read Paul's characterization of the righteous life that's made possible by God's spirit. 
It appears beautiful and good, but perhaps inadequate to the moment. I'm not commending such disappointment, but confessing it is there. And I'd like to invite us to spend some time critically interrogating this sense of disappointment, which is perhaps one that some of you share. A first and somewhat obvious point to make at the outset is that an ethic that's focused on purity and unity among believers does not, of course, exclude productively engaging with the wider challenges that face our society. While Paul may not explicitly encourage this kind of social engagement, he doesn't discourage it either. And we can, in other parts of scripture, find examples where spirit-led people have confronted political authorities or worked to address broad challenges affecting some large swath of society. I think, for example, of Joseph's wisdom in leading Egypt to prepare for approaching famine, positioning Egypt to aid neighboring peoples who were not similarly prepared. Or of midwives in ancient Egypt lying to Pharaoh in order to protect newborns from Pharaoh's unjust order to have Hebrew babies killed. Or of Nathan confronting David, the king, and calling out his perverse abuse of power in his dealings with Bathsheba and Uriah. Or of Elijah confronting King Ahab, who had at his wife's bidding unjustly murdered uh, or cooperated with her in, in the unjust murder of Naboth and the acquisition of his vineyard. Or perhaps of Paul's collection of funds from churches in Asia Minor, Greece, and Italy to support impoverished Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, thereby exemplifying an ethic of economic concern that transcends national and cultural boundaries. Nothing Paul says in Ephesians prevents us from looking to such examples as illustrations of spirit-led engagement with larger social problems. Paul is clearly aware that the demands of righteousness go beyond anything that could be codified in a description of Christian living. This helps to explain why in our passage, he exhorts believers to seek to understand the will of the Lord. The leading of the spirit cannot be predicted and no list of principles can absolve us of the need to listen for God's leading. God can of course lead individual Christians or a community of believers to bold social and political action, whether or not such action is anticipated in any particular epistle in the New Testament. Nonetheless, the emphasis here in Ephesians is on personal and communal holiness rather than on, than on engagement with large-scale society-wide challenges. This pietistic emphasis may be troubling, even if it does not rule out the possibility that we're called in the spirit to engage larger societal challenges and evils. In reading passages like this one in Ephesians, it's natural to conclude that the central locus of our spiritual work is in purifying ourselves and establishing bonds of peace and unity within the church. Of course, this emphasis may in part simply reflect the context within which Paul was writing. The Roman Empire of the first century was not a high time for democracy. Christians in Ephesus and Asia Minor didn't have a vote, as far as I know, or ready means of influencing policy. Most of the Christians hearing this letter probably did not have significant wealth to share. Even if they did, I'm guessing that in the first century Greco-Roman world, there were not abundant charities taking donations to tackle pressing social problems. In short, the scope of influence enjoyed by these Christians was likely quite limited, even among the most well-connected. It makes sense then that one of the most socially transformative actions available to these Christians was that of forming a community where Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, men and women, 
slave and free, would gather together as brothers and sisters to acknowledge their equality in the sight of the Lord. In this first point, I've suggested that Paul's emphasis on personal and communal holiness should not lead us to think that our Christian calling is only concentrated with the, or uh, is concerned only with the purification of our souls and with the unity and peace of the church community. Having said this, however, I think we must acknowledge that from the perspective of this passage, and I dare say scripture as a whole, individual piety, righteousness, and yes, purity matter. They are not optional. We are called to more than individual piety, but none of us are called to anything less. Forests and towns out west may burn, Europe may flood, coral reefs may die, but whatever else we may be called to do about these tragic events, we are also called to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among ourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts. A global pandemic may take lives, eliminate jobs and shut down schools, and whatever else we may be called to do, we are also to give thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The days are evil, the darkness is formidable, but God still cares about your heart. Quoting Paul from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, God desires that you be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paraphrasing the verses that follow, God still wants each of us to cease stealing quit unwholesome talk, to build others up with our speech, to show compassion, to extend forgiveness, and to walk in the ways of love. How can this be? Could God genuinely care what melody is in your heart when the world is burning? In a world thrown into turmoil, where lives and livelihood of so many are under threat, is it really acceptable to tend to the health of your soul? Scripture answers these questions in the affirmative. Even when the world is burning, God does care about the state of your heart. Even in the face of global crisis, you should care about purity, piety, and the health of your soul. I will suggest two reasons why piety and purity of heart should remain of crucial concern even when the world is in a time of crisis. First, Ultimate responsibility for the story of God's creation belongs to God, not to us. We do, of course, have genuine responsibility for one another, or at least that is my view. We may harm others or help them, ease burdens or intensify them. Indeed, the scope of our responsibility is somewhat terrifying, extending as it does to future generations. But the influence we may have on any person's story or on the story of humanity as a whole, is not unlimited. God has guaranteed the end of our individual stories and our collective story, at least in outline. Here is what Paul says at the outset of Ephesians. I start in the third verse of the first chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love. 
He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In the fullness of time, we are told, all things will be gathered up in Christ. This was God's plan before the foundation of the world. And if Paul is right, nothing we could do could prevent God from accomplishing this plan. Now, there's a risk that with this confident affirmation, this affirmation that God's ultimate victory is assured, whatever may happen to, say, American democracy or to polar ice caps, the risk is that we become complacent. That because we believe that, it is, that God is ultimately victorious, we think that what we do or do not do for others does not matter, leading us to neglect the opportunities that we have to promote the flourishing of those around us and to alleviate their suffering in the present age as we await God's final victory. But apparently Paul did not think that this risk of complacency was any reason to refrain from pro proclaiming with confidence that God accomplishes all things, as Paul writes, according to his counsel and will. With this assurance of God's ultimate, ultimate success, we can maintain genuine hope in dark times. This hope is not predicated on assurance that human ingenuity and willpower will allow us to overcome the dire challenges that confront us. The reasonableness of any such assurance is increasingly questionable. Rather, our hope is predicated on God's promise of, to quote Second Peter, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. A new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Yes, much responsibility has been given to us, but not ultimate responsibility. We do not create the new heaven and the new earth. God does. History is not ultimately in our hands, but it is in the Lord's, even in times of deepest trouble. In such times, God invites us to take time to meet together, to sing songs of God's love and goodness, to enjoy with gratitude the good things that God has provided, and to serve one another with tenderness and love. Even in the presence of formidable enemies, God has prepared a table before us. He invites us to sit, to be nourished by living bread, to be anointed by his spirit, to grow in wisdom, and to enjoy a foretaste of that new creation where righteousness dwells. So the first reason you contend to your soul in times of crisis is that ultimate responsibility belongs to God, not to us. Second, you may do so because you are God's child, not God's employee. God cares about the state of your mind and the health of your soul, even when the world is in turmoil, because to God, you are not merely some agent of change that God uses to bring about social improvement. Yes, we are God's servants, appointed to do God's work. Drawing on various New Testament metaphors, we may rightly think of ourselves as God's laborers or as God's are as managers of God's property, or as soldiers in God's army, or as God's ambassadors in a foreign land. 
but none of these get to the deepest truth of our identity. Having put on Christ, we are first and foremost God's adopted children. And in the evening, we are invited, or we may labor in the field by day, but we do so not as God's hired hands, but as God's children. And in the evening, we are invited to share an intimate meal with God, our Father, and with a motley group of brothers and sisters that have also been adopted into the family. God cares about the state of your soul, not primarily because this makes you a more effective laborer, though it may, but because God wants us to be in communion with him and with one another. To enter this communion is to enter the place where righteousness dwells. So we need to be righteous. For any family to flourish, its members must exercise self-control, resist selfish desires, and cultivate desire for the good of others. As members of God's family, we're called to be patient with one another, to be quick to help, ready to forgive, and to really flourish in the household of God, we must also be able to recognize just how good God has been to us and to feel appropriate gratitude for everything God has given. So yes, in the face of evils, small and large, we're still called to pursue righteousness and to tend to the health of our souls. We may do so first because however significant our responsibility may be, it is not ultimate. And second, because we are not primarily God's laborers doing God's bidding, but are God's children invited to intimate fellowship with him. For these reasons, we continue to gather, even in times that might appear to be apocalyptic, to practice being family together. We seek to live in a way that is worthy of our calling as members of the household of God. When we do gather together, we are instructed to sing, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Music, as we all know, can awaken our emotions and shape their content. Consider an occasion where I know rationally that I should get off the couch and do that week's push-ups. At some intellectual level, I really do desire to do the push-ups, but as often happens at the level of feeling, I may be incredibly averse to getting off the couch. Thankfully, like many others, I've discovered a useful life hack. I put in my earbuds and play the right sort of invigorating music, and it's likely that I will suddenly feel like getting off the couch and pushing myself. This happens, I think, because the music has elicited in me a certain kind of emotion. Now, there's not just one emotional pathway by which music can inspire exertion. But if I had to describe the emotion that tends to be elicited in me by the sort of workout music I prefer, I might say that the music stirs in me something like an appreciation of the value of struggle, the dignity of rising up to meet a challenge. Sitting on the couch before the music was playing, I would have intellectually affirmed that there's value in struggling and fighting for something. But listening to the music, I viscerally feel that this is true. And I'm thereby inspired to embody an excellence that the music has attuned me to appreciate. Music then can be a tool that stirs and enlivens certain emotions. And there are some truths, I think, that must emotionally be felt to be understood. Truths known principally by the heart rather than the analytical intellect. Without undergoing the right sorts of emotional experiences, we could not fully understand the badness of losing a loved one, the sweetness of friendship, or the excellence of God's grace. So when we sing of God's power, grace, and love, and when the music stirs in us feelings of awe, gratitude, and joy, this can help us to more fully grasp and appreciate the truth of the gospel that we proclaim. 
Perhaps you know these lyrics from a contemporary worship song by Paul Belosh. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. To see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your spirit and love as we sing, holy, holy, holy. I love that phrase, the eyes of my heart. One reason we sing together is because doing so helps the eyes of our heart to further open, allowing us to more fully grasp the beauty of God and the wonder of what God has done for us. And speaking of the eyes of our heart, the worship song references the first chapter of Ephesians. There, beginning in verse 17, Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those who believe. Some of us, I am sure, are called by God to do something bold and courageous to address one or more of the daunting challenges facing our world. But all of us are called to share a meal at God's table. We are called into fellowship with God and with God's many children. And to fulfill that high calling, we must be righteous and pure, oriented in thought, desire, and deed toward that which is holy and true. Thankfully, this purification and cleansing of our soul is not something that we accomplish on our own. Jesus' own spirit is at work within us, preparing us to enter that new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. While we await that new creation, let us not neglect to sing together, singing in expectation that God, the fount of every blessing, will tune our hearts to sing God's grace.